Hello and welcome to another World Cup. I say another, we haven't done one for about 10 days or so, but, um, you know, the intention was there. A World Cup edition of uh, Football Unfocused, hosted by uh, me, my name is Mark, and my good friend and podcasting comrade, Matthew. Say hello, Matthew. Hello. <laughs> hello, hello. I Mark. always have to prompt him. He never he never just jumps in and just... Uh... I don't like to speak over you <laughs> during the intro. It's just, you, you, you just can't be asked, can you? Your attitude to this podcast is I'm just going to sit here and say as little as possible and see if I can get away with it, see if anyone notices. Wait till it's done. I can imagine it's, uh, yeah, just lie back and there's probably an innuendo in there somewhere. Probably is, yeah. You'll find it. (laughs) No no howling wolf this week, Matthew? No, she's downstairs. She's a bit better now. She's settling in. What about the dog? (laughs) Banter, banter, (laughs) banter. Oh, it really lads, is great. Lads, lads. It's great humour. <laughs> really is great. Great humour. First class. First class stuff. Lovely stuff. Yeah. Yeah, good. Um, so a bit more settled, not not howling. No, not so much. Good. No. She's got used to the horror of living with you. <laughs> yeah. It's just a constant nightmare. Mm. So, yeah. just mm. just But it's consistent, so, yeah. so that helps. And the dog. Yeah, I've done it again. <laughs> um... um <laughs> Matthew, how's your build-up? I'm not, I'm not going to ask structured questions this week, but I do want to learn a little bit more about you before we talk about the World Cup. Um, I'm interested in your... your um, now, last um, time you gave some really interesting <laughs> insight into the fact that you, I think quite annoyingly, I'm sure most people would agree, quite annoyingly, certainly for your colleagues, you start preparing for Christmas and uh, sort of prepping Christmas and telling people how long there is until Christmas a long way before anyone else is even slightly um, feeling slightly festive. Today is the 7th of December, if I'm not mistaken. Um, what's your Christmas uh, preparation status as things stand? Are you Is your house decorated? Have you bought presents? Are you excited? House is, house is decorated, bought some presents, getting very excited. However, yeah, it's interesting. Are you because actually I getting started... excited? Is that real? Are you yeah, really yeah, yeah, of course. Wow. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Continue. it is... You know, because <laughs> because I started sort of sending out messages to colleagues about, you know, how long it is till Christmas, blah, blah, blah. I'm now a bit sheepish because, you know, our kind of head poncho of uh, where I work, you know, that there's quite a lot of messaging on our intranet and that sort of thing about people that actually have quite a hard time at Christmas yeah. and actually don't like it at all. Yep. And actually, someone like me sort of just constantly reminding them mm. about how close it is. Did they uh, name you, you in know. person in this? Uh, on, on, on <laughs> yeah, internet? I mean, all the signs were People there. People like you with a picture of you, <laughs> or just alluding, you know, you know the guy. Heavy, we all know who he is. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's sort of some. He he he's got some eye condition. Yeah, some, you know, people Keeps that have eye things. conditions. Keeps up doing things. He's got a really extraordinary laugh. You know, you can always hear. Yeah, him. people that have podcasts. Yeah, yeah. He goes. Yeah, yeah. Sort of wears <laughs> Larry coloured shoes so that you can see where his feet are going on a dark day. Yeah, yeah. Good. Um, uh, so yeah, so I've actually tried to tone it down slightly because. I might get sacked if yeah. I keep going on about it. Good, good. Um, right, excellent. And one one more question about your Christmas, Matthew, is Christmas Day itself. I want to zone in on that. What is your? Because I'm assuming you're a man who has a you know a pretty a relatively set Christmas Day regime. 
slash timetable. What is your favourite part of Christmas Day? Oh, so many highlights. I, I like it all. That's not I the do, question I asked but, you. But, but, I asked you to choose one. I think what's... What, Pick your favourite yeah, okay, kid. Well, <laughs> I guess the the food. If I had to pick, yeah. it would be the food. Now, as a vegetarian, what, what what's going on that plate? Yeah, it's going to be interesting. So Joe's parents are going to be hosting. Mm. Um, so I think they'll do a really good. They they remember are me they vegetarians? from when I was. No, no, but they'll they'll be very accommodating. I think, um, and they remember me from when I was sort of you know, really into rowing and I did a lot of fitness and blah, blah, blah. And, and, uh, and so they used to be able to feed me so much food, but I wasn't, you know, I was, I was quite slim, you know, when I was younger, but now they, they try and feed me the same amount. Like, and as a man hurtling like, towards 41, you're like, oh, the atom- yeah, exactly. metabolism is slowing. But Matthew, you still look like a fine figure of a man. You look like you could, you could sit and eat roast potatoes you know, even even if you weren't seven. a vegetarian, you could eat roast potatoes drizzling in goose fat all day long, and you wouldn't. You know, there would be no consequences. Very, I mean, I dare say there'd be a, maybe a bit of uh, post uh, post dinner gas, but <laughs> that would be the end of the consequences. That would be the worst bit. Yeah. yeah, but I do think I think that the, it's important possibly to to try and get a bit of exercise in at the start. We yeah. mentioned this previously, mm. and you go for a run. And I used to run, but now I can't really because I'll run into something. But but some sort of exercise is that even true at, at like, the like say like ten o'clock in the morning on a really bright sunny day? Could you still not risk an outdoor it's run? Too, it's too yeah, too dodgy. What about if you had someone with you and you were running along, say a really open I, space with no yeah, hazards, I could no do, trip hazards? I could see that. Yeah. Why are you offering yourself? Absolutely not. No. <laughs> No. I mean, the idea of seeing you on Christmas Day, or indeed any day, is, uh, is pretty <laughs> horrific. Pretty horrific, yeah. <laughs> and then having to run so you, hand in... I mean, I suppose we'd hold hands to make sure. Mm, mm. Or, or would we have a little rope? Well, it's interesting, because I, I hate running with other people. I don't like doing any sort of exercise yeah, I remember you telling uh, with, me. with other people, apart from team sports and, uh, and the obvious. Um, but... Uh, um, <laughs> Oh, I forgot what I was going to... oh yeah, before my new lodger moved in, it was suggested to me when we were preparing for my new lodger to arrive that it might be quite nice because my new lodger is quite small um, and it might be quite nice for me to have some sort of vessel whereby I could take the lodger out for a run with me, be that something that yes. you push along or something that you strap to yourself. Yeah, yeah, and I yeah. said, absolutely fucking not. Why the fuck <laughs> would I... I'm running to escape. <laughs> That's my time where I'm out, you know. <laughs> I'll have a break from the so running. Have you and go, been running as much? Honestly, I, I, I know this. I think it is helped by the fact that I have a, a slightly laissez-faire approach to work life. But I have done. <laughs> I've, there's been a, a relatively significant uptick in my exercise since the baby. Uh, sorry, since my lodger has arrived. Well, we all know it's a baby. Uh, has, has arrived. You're doing more. Y- yeah. I mean, I always aim for an average of 100 miles a month and I've done 110, 115 and 112 since since the lodgers moved in. So, uh, which I needed to do oh. because I had a low, I dipped below in February and April of this year. So I needed to make up to hit the 1200 Minimum for the for the year. The, the the swimming's taken a hit. Two a week has gone down to one a week. I'm not a I'm not a I'm not a monster. 
But because you know, there are days when you don't you don't really have any reason to sort of leave the house. You want to you want to make sure the, the the boy gets out and gets some fresh air and has a good walk every day. But that sometimes on the basis that I'm supposed to be working, that that will be handled by um, his mum. So uh, I then think, well, you know, my, my 45, 50 minutes out running in the bracing cold or whatever the weather may be is that's, that's a yeah. vital part of the day. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. Sorry, just the way you referred to your fiance as his mum always makes me when people do that. It makes me think they're not together anymore. Yeah, but you. Well, how do you know clarify, we are? You are still. You've not seen me today. Are you going to ask <laughs> well, me I on the podcast? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just saw it in the background, so I assume you are together. Yeah. Well, we're, we're keeping up the pretense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Once we... Sorry, that wasn't that wasn't any useful point. I love that. Imagine if I'd said no, and we started discussing the dissolution of my, <laughs> yeah. my um, that's like in the year, office, near, like, ten-year relationship. On what, uh, what's he say in the office? He's like, oh, she oh has, you, she did leave. so left you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and she, she left you. Yeah, yeah. Oh, she has. <laughs> I he's like, oh yeah. <laughs> forgot she has left him. Yeah, nearly nearly, nearly <laughs> ten years, but yeah, down down the swanning. Uh, now, when we finally get uh, married, then I'll be able to, uh, after all these years, be able to use the term the wife, which I've um, always... Oh, no, uh, that's horrible, that Yeah, I know. Term. It's really disparaging, isn't it? I think that's why I like it. Um, oh, so, no, don't do that. <laughs> the wife. Yeah. No, think it... Did you hear oh, on Top Flight was... Time Machine the other week that, where they, and I totally agree with this, they said that any man who uses the term wifey to describe his wife should be castrated and thrown off a cliff. And I thought, yeah, Absolutely. Uh, wifey is the worst. Oh. It's weird but because a lot of women say, say hubby, don't they? Which you can kind of live yeah, with. Yeah, but, but a man, a man who that says feels wifey, what does? But wifey, wifey feels um, it feels something from the other side of the pond. I will tell you what it is, Matt. So. It's the it's the words and behaviour of a cunt. So <laughs> let's talk about football, Matthew. Yes, I'm going to ask you. In fact, this is probably the most important question of a lot. Have you? Been watching <laughs> the FIFA World Cup? Uh, yes, sometimes. Right. What I've matches been checking the results. have you watched? You've been checking results. I watched, so. uh, yeah, I watched Croatia versus Japan. Right, one of the worst games and, of the uh, time. Yeah. yeah, and Joe said, she said, oh, that, that player looks familiar, a Croatian player. Mm. I was like, I don't think so. I don't. There's no reason why you'd know who that is. And then, um, and then I looked it up, and I was like, "Oh, he plays for Tottenham. That's probably why you recognise him." And she goes, "Yeah, that's the team you support, isn't it?" I said, "Yeah, yeah, that's right." <laughs> what an anecdote! But, and would I be right in thinking that the player that you noticed, well, she noticed. If I'm all right, she noticed. I'm I'm going to be generous here and suggest it was Ivan Perisic because he currently plays for Tottenham, or. Did she notice Luka no, Modric? No, 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 it wasn't Modric. It wasn't no, Modric. It was per- it wasn't. I was going to say, he's, it was, it he was Tottenham about 10 years ago. So it was Perisic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. fair play to Joe. So she recognised a Croatia yeah, player as a, as a Tottenham player who only joined in this, this summer. I'm this still sceptical. That's where she... I was like, you cannot have known that. Do you reckon she sat there and just quickly Googled <laughs> she the player and went, oh, don't he play for Spurs? <laughs> and, and when she said the team you support, was that like in a sort of accusationary way? Like, you're, the, you're supposed to support them. Yeah, you're meant to do a podcast about football, aren't yeah. you? Yeah, yeah. You're supposed to know these things. Yeah. <laughs> Did she test you on, uh, on other like really like intricate stuff no, like I what colour kids team are wearing? No more football tonight for us. 
Yeah, that's it. Yeah, your head hurt after going that that sort of high level. Right. So you watched Croatia yeah. against Japan. Is that it? That was. No, no. I've watched a few. I mean, obviously England. We could talk about the England. You match. watched all England games. Yeah, yeah. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Let's do England uh, first. Then, what yeah. do you, what do you think of England uh, so far? I think there's some really exciting elements to the team. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like when Jude Bellingham and Henderson always kissed. Um, but I do feel there's a slightly soft underbelly that potentially could get exposed very mm. easily by a, a good, you know, someone who can pounce on a mistake. It's interesting because uh, that same point has been made about probably about three or four hundred. of the teams who look good. Everyone keeps saying, yeah, but once Brazil plays someone decent and you get into them, you know, that they, they could be weak. They've got like yeah, Targo Silva, who's very old man as their main central defender. And then they said the same even about France, that, you know, they're, they're, the 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 stability of their centre midfield of uh, Pogba and Conte, they're gone. So are they going to be as um, sort of formidable and solid as they have been in the past when they get really tested? So, yeah, I think it is reasonable to say that a bit about England, particularly as one of their but two centre-backs say... has, has been in like yeah. diabolically bad club form for about a year. But some players are genuinely, and Paul Pogba's a good example of this, are genuinely completely different at international and club level. You, your form can go off a cliff... And you can find international football almost like a, a sort of breath of fresh air that you go into it, you, you feel comfortable in that environment. It gives you a bit of a break from the drudgery of sort of underperforming or not getting picked for your, your club every week. And then you, you, it awakens you and reminds you what made you a good footballer in the first place. Your confidence comes back. So maybe maybe that's what's happening with Maguire. But I'm also very aware when you say stuff like that, three or four days before a knockout game against the world champions, you you, you risk yeah. massively being um, okay. proved wrong. But but when you say out of the, 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 you know, the last 16 matches, yep. England as, you know, quote unquote, maybe one of the second tier favourites, mm-hmm. they probably looked the most vulnerable out of, you know, out of the last 16 matches, Brazil, France, Netherlands. Mm, um, that's, that's a very interesting question. I, I'm not sure I would agree with that on the basis they didn't okay. lay in any goals. I know that they, they could have done mm. that first sort of 20, 25 minutes before they scored and sort of took control of the game. They did look a little bit shaky. But frankly, you know, you watch a Premier League game sometimes where one of the more dominant teams ends up sort of, you know, having a comfortable win. Man City will often, uh, or Liverpool before we fell apart, would would have games where, you know, you end up winning 3-0, but when you actually look at the, you know, the way the game went, I remember having a, I think it was in our um, uh, title winning season, not long before the um, pandemic kicked in, we had a home game against Southampton, which we ended up winning 3 or 4-0. And before we started rattling in the goals they had some massive chances where they really could have like buried us even going back to the I remember like the, the first game of the I think it was the 18-19 um, season when Liverpool got like, 97 points and came second but won the Champions League as well we played Norwich at home on a Friday night at the beginning of the season and they were ripping through us for the first sort of 20 minutes or so and we still won that game comfortably so yeah. I don't think you can always necessarily use that as a point to sort of say uh, kind of to go too big on the conclusion that they're they're soft or vulnerable what I will say is that I think that 
it's really weird, isn't it? Because people who, a lot of people, a lot of English people, in fact, who are kind of a bit, bit more relaxed, shall we say, about the England football team, and I put myself very much yeah. in that number. Um, one of the things that has kind of put them off, made them turn their nose up, the England national team over the years, is the the hysteria when they win a game and the kind of cockiness and the misguided confidence and people like, you know, and it all being thrown in with that sort of like slightly jingoistic nationalistic edge and it all becomes a bit unpleasant yeah. and divisive and you you feel like you're not part of that. And as a result, you kind of, and this is, I'm speaking very much from myself here, you kind of almost then end up taking it out on the team whereby you don't want them to win and it's got nothing to do with the individuals in question. It's to do with the, the people who who are most enthusiastic about seeing England do well. You just don't want them <laughs> to be happy. Um, yeah. But I, probably one of the things that I've, not that I don't like about this World Cup overall has, has bizarrely contributed to me probably being a bit more enthusiastic about England. And that's the fact that the fact that it's a winter World Cup, the fact that there was a subdued lead up to it and all the controversy and everything meant that it was massively underplayed. The fact that there was no gap after the domestic football finished and then bang, you know, what was it five or six days rest World Cup starts um, has kind of meant that no... There was no time or space for the dickheads to sort of start whipping things up. There was no time for a you know a rubbish novelty single. Not that they seem to do it anymore, but the flags out because people it's too fucking cold, especially now. You know, um, so it kind of has felt understated, probably because you know it might be because I'm watching the game at home with a an eleven week year old and an Irish citizen. Um, but the reaction to the game seems a lot more kind of reasonable and uh, proportional because I don't even get the sense when they, you know, they love to show like the box park footage of people throwing beer over each other when the goals go in and all that. And I, even that yeah, seems yeah. a little bit calmer than it would be if it was kind of July. Um, and, I, and I just think in, to be fair to England. Yeah. So, the, so my point was that uh, I think at the beginning of that, before I started rambling is that you, 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 you get, um, a sort of a proportion of people who don't like England because of that sort of cockiness and like to see them do badly. And a lot of those people are, are kind of English and I'm, and I probably have been guilty of being in it, but I can't help, but like the squad of players. I, I've got so much time for the manager and the way that he approaches everything about his job, the dignity with which he carries himself, even when he's getting criticism, be it fair or unfair. Um, he just deals with it in a really, really um, dignified, honourable way. He doesn't lower himself. He doesn't get involved in petty spats. He is like the he is like the complete diametric opposite of the Alex Ferguson kind of media war um, years of just you know contrived arguments, briefing against a referee, calling out journalists and having them banned from press conferences, making everything adversarial, trying to create problems with opposition managers, making comments about opposition players. He is like the dignified opposite end of that unpleasant scale, and it's just. And what he's done is he's managed to take pretty much throughout my lifetime, with a couple of exceptions of the 1990 World Cup and Euro 96, it has felt that playing for England has been this massive burden and sometimes a bit of a pain in the ass, really, for a lot of the players. The shirt weighs really heavy. They they play for the team like they hate in every minute of it. There's, there seems to be no kind of bonding with the team and the squad and they can't get away from there quick enough and they sort of limp out of these competitions having put in these sort of gutless, pathetic, under-par performances. And some of the managers have, you know, you get the feeling like they've gone from sort of the more relaxed, um, like get the lads together type 
coaches of you know sort of Keegan and or McLaren and maybe even Sven to, to some extent and then like dealing with that reacting to that by giving a job to someone like Capello who's just in there to be a, a disciplinarian and, and, and very clearly from the anecdotes you hear now went way too far the other end of the scale and Southgate mm. but I think because his playing international career relatively speaking is recent and he's not that long since he came out of that environment um he has a re- he seems to have a really intricate understanding of what an international player needs in terms of you know the environment around them to to give their absolute best and to feel comfortable to be open with the media to be open about their kind of own personalities to be in that sort of supportive ego free environment free from like the club 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 rivalries i think it's also helped and this is something he can't really take credit for it's just a just the way things are that in the days of the quote golden generation of you know stephen gerrard frank lampard john terry wayne rooney rio ferdinand etc um which looking back there was a complete catastrophic sort of failure over like a 10-year period they were, they were pretty much useless across I mean they got to a few quarterfinals and lost on penalties but you know when you look at the talent on show like you know Ashley Cole throughout that time was probably the best left back in the world and you know the team basically achieved nothing and a lot of the problem was that they would have um, four or five players or three or four players from three or four different clubs that basically hated each other so therefore those players <laughs> that, that, and that that atmosphere and because they were in these really intense battles for domestic and european trophies against each other that that hostility retained you know continued spilt over into the england camp and i think that there's none of that now they genuinely seem like a team and i can i can say this completely objectively because i I do care. Like I do. I do actually want England to win it because I like what the team stands for. Similar to what we were saying last year in the in the Euros, I really like the the sort of values of the team. I like the way they're managed, and I, I find it difficult to actually f- to identify any players in that squad that I that I dislike. And in the past, you know, I'd look and I'd, as soon as one of them walks out the tunnel and it's John Terry, like with the captain's armband, I think I'm immediately out. It's basically a fascist, you know, captaining the team. Horrible, <laughs> nasty bullying racist twat with the most punchable face in the history of world people um and he's the fucking captain and then and then the rest of them you just look at a twat asshole you know but now they're just yeah i'm on i'm on board with them and and but because i'm i'm still relatively calm in terms of i don't i don't care that much i i think i can objectively say it is not impossible they could win it it really isn't impossible they've got a hell of a tough task because i probably i'd have said before the tournament of france would be my favorites to win it and i stand by that i i think they're still more dangerous than brazil brazil were really really good the other night but korea made it bloody easy for them and I think brazil have lost every knockout game they've played against a european opposition since winning the World Cup in 2002. So they've hit a hurdle from memory. I think 2006, they lost to France, albeit, I think, in the semi-final. Uh, 2010, they got done by the Dutch. 2014, obviously, infamously, they lost a, a, a semi-final on home turf, 7-1 to the Germans. And 2018, who knocked about Belgium, I think it was, in 2018. So that's their kind of big hurdle they've got to overcome. Uh, they've now got... What a quarter final against! I don't even remember who they're bloody playing. Um, but, oh shit, we should know. But that. I know that they've got potentially a a, um, a semi final with Argentina if Argentina can beat the Dutch. So Brazil could they're playing Croatia. Croatia, of course, yeah. So of the European teams they could be playing, you'd say Croatia 
they're always dangerous because they find a way to win. They're, they're so good at finding a way to win, but they are probably not the side they were four years ago. So, yeah, that'll be a bit more of a test for them. But I, I think France is probably the toughest test, um, and England, if they can overcome that. But how classic uh, uh, England would it be to kind of, you know, go and beat France and then limp to a semi-final defeat against like, Morocco or something? Um <laughs> Uh, which would Wait, are we on their side? I don't think we are. Right? No, I think it was yeah we? because we would have played um, oh. Spain in the semi final had Spain not oh. lost last night. So it's Morocco. It's the winner of Morocco Portugal, isn't it? Um, in the semi final. So I would argue that whoever England play in the semi final wow. will should they win would be a, a, a much easier task than beating France, and, and it's probably all the more reason why they wouldn't do it. Um, so. So I think Spain now have the worst penalty shootout record. Yeah, they have lost a lot of shootouts over the years. I think it's four Mm. now. So we were all level on three. England, Italy and Spain, I think. That's just World Cups because England have obviously lost Euros as well. They've lost, I think, at least two Euros. I think that's just World Cups, yeah. Yeah. Three, if I remember. I remember England losing Euro 2012, Euro 96 and 2004. There might even be more, but... Yeah, so it, so I think when you throw the extra three into the mix, they've got a pretty England's record is pretty difficult to pretty poor. to get lower than yeah. But yeah, Sp- <laughs> yeah, Sp- Sp- and Spain's penalties yesterday were absolutely per- um, pathetic. You know, they they didn't even score they didn't score a penalty. Didn't score one, despite the fact that Luis Enrique, their coach, had said uh, he instructed every player a year before the tournament to take a thousand penalties <laughs> in the time between them and now. <laughs> Um, someone obviously didn't do their homework. Yeah, someone, some, yeah, someone hasn't been staying behind after training. I, none of them have been staying behind after training. But um, what do you? I, I mean, off did the, you do off, a thousand penalties? Yes, yeah, of I course did. I did. Yeah, 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 yeah. Any of them? Any, any evidence of it? No, 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 no. no, no. I like to do these things, uh, in, you know, in my own time. Have you? I, I think from the quarterfinals, uh, the the. The team I was most impressed with, sorry, not quarterfinals, the, the round of 16, was the last game last night, Portugal against Switzerland. They were absolutely brilliant, Portugal. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, brilliant. hasn't Ronaldo's value. Sorry, is this not what you want to talk about? No, no, I'm no. Sure. I'm very happy to talk about uh, Ronaldo. His his value must have fallen quite spectacularly. Well, yeah, he's, yeah. at the moment, you think about the last few weeks for him. He was offered 200 million a year. He hasn't got a club. Well, no, he has. Yeah, but the, the Saudis will still pay him that because if he was going to... Well, because essentially, if you go and play in the Saudi Arabian League, you're you're admitting that your career is over. So you're literally just doing it for the money. Now, he's he's one of the richest sports people in the world, so he definitely doesn't need the money. But if he's looking at it and saying, well, this is an opportunity to, like, you know, double my wealth, even though I'm in the last year or two of my, my career, then, then... But I suspect... That will be the last, despite the money, that will be the last thing he wants to do because his obsession, because he's so driven by ego, his obsession is to get that Champions League goal scoring record kind of out of sight so that players who are still playing don't have the realistic chance of catching it. Because Messi has scored uh, three or four goals in the Champions League already this year and obviously Ronaldo's not been playing in it and that must eat away at him because that's the sort of character he is. And what I found really interesting about Portugal last night, and it was really lovely, when I saw he wasn't picked, I came out, <laughs> I came out of swimming, I, I just listened to the Spain penalties, I thought I'd go home and watch that, um, uh, some highlights of that. And I heard that Ronaldo hadn't been picked and I... I sort of in a in in a WhatsApp group. I sort of said, "Oh, yeah, it's nice to see that the um, Portuguese manager has, has, has 
finally woken up to the what Eric Ten Hag realised a little while ago, which is that at this stage of his career, the only way that you can um, get a performance out of him is to literally adapt the entire way that the team plays around just servicing him because he barely moves. He just goes from different sides of the sort of six-yard box. But he's, I have to say, he, I mean, I actually find him quite disgraceful, really. The way that he dealt with his exit from Old Trafford, the way that he just, you know, he waited until the last game was over and then had that interview with the repulsive Piers Morgan uh, broadcast. as a That was a kind of done as a, like a, a power play. I'll show you. He knew his days were numbered. He knew his, his performances are not good enough to warrant being in the side. And in Eric Ten Hag, he finally found a coach who was prepared to say, you know what, yeah, fuck how many shirts we sell. Fuck how many idiots are only here to see him because all they know about football these days is the individual rather than the club. Um, uh, he is holding us back and we're much better off when we've got young, dynamic, pacey, ambitious players who aren't driven by ego, who aren't going to throw their arms in the air every time a pass doesn't go perfectly for them. Um, build a team around them and uh, we'll be a significantly better side, particularly in the you know Premier League football, which is so much based around that kind of high-pressing, high-intense, um, quick football that he's just incapable of playing at this stage of his career. But because he's so egotistical and he has put so much play into sort of retaining his levels, which are undoubtedly exceptional levels, of course, he's one of the greatest players of all time. Although not the greatest, and it must kill him to wait to see the way Messi's been playing in this tournament. And with such elegance and ease of you know as well the you know again talk about opposites um yeah. there really is quite a contrast there um uh so yeah so so his inability to kind of accept that and to take a reduced role and now it's happening to him at international level as well and what really stood out i think about portugal's performance last night was the players not only did that i think it you know, because there have been suggestions that he's not the most popular player around in terms of like with the other Portuguese players. When he turned up for the squad, there was a a, fa- a bit of footage that ca- caused a bit of a stir on social media of him going up to Bruno Fernandes at the time his club teammate and getting a less than warm reception. You know, in terms of what what you'd think, maybe a bit of a half-hearted handshake or whatever. And there has been rumblings over the years that um, you know his Portuguese teammates. Ne- possibly found him a little bit uh, tiresome, shall we say. And in a country where he is clearly, a, like, a, and for good reason, a national hero, one of their best-selling newspapers did a, a poll during the week and 70% of respondents um, were in favour of him being left out because they, they, the, the, te- the team will play with more freedom without him. And they were just... I loved Portugal when I was, like, a teenager. The team of, like, Rui Costa... And Luis Figo and the uh, uh, Sar Pinto and Jao Pinto and all like they were absolutely brilliant and it was they were like the European Brazil the way that they would um, sort of move the ball around and the type of players they would have load of really tricky low center of gravity clever players and it looked like that return to that type of Portugal and they were so dynamic and exciting and Switzerland are a really really tough nuts crack and all right they went to pieces a little mm. bit last night but just to crack them in the first place is no mean feat took Brazil I mean Brazil, I think Brazil beat them 1-0 in the group and it was a really late goal so um you know I would be very very impressed with Portugal and if the if the the manager who always you know um, looks. I know everyone makes this point, but he really does look like an, an absolutely knackered long-distance coach driver on a fag break. He's just got that that <laughs> that that, um, that look about him. 
uh, at all times that he's now finally sort of had enough and said, like, I'm, I left you out. And for it, for it to pay off so brilliantly um, and without Ronaldo having the opportunity to really play any role, despite coming off the bench. I even noticed, by the way, and admittedly, maybe I was getting a bit obsessive about this and watching him very closely, <laughs> but he was even, he even managed in the sort of 10 minutes he was on the pitch to do a bit of arms throwing around and kind of making everything about himself. And at the end of the game, he walked straight down the tunnel, didn't go and applaud his He was the only one not to do that. And I was I walked into the kitchen, I was listening to um, to Five Live, and, and, and Kelly Cates, sort of taking the devil's advocate position, said to... Um, Rob Green, who was the, the former England goalkeeper, who was the summariser, she said, well, um, you know, if I'm going to look at this journalistically from both sides, maybe Ronaldo, knowing all the attention will be on him, would walk down the tunnel at the end because uh, he wouldn't want to make it all about him. He'd want to... Uh, and Rob Green made two points. He's like, he knows he's going to be filmed going down the tunnel because of who he is. And also, literally every other player, including both sub-goalkeepers, who... who you know, also didn't play much part in the game, are over there now clapping their fans and they're there in one big group. So it is absolutely pathetic. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I, I actually think, you know, that Portugal are, are off the leash and are very, very, they've got brilliant players in every position. So yeah, the quarterfinals are going to be very interesting. More really generally, Matthew, just more generally about the World Cup, is there anything, obviously there was a lot of controversy going into it, is there anything you've 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 noticed or picked up on or... I mean, clearly the the heat about all the the sort of human rights and um, uh, workers' rights issues seems to seems to have subsided to some extent, which was always inevitable, wasn't it? Um, but I do think that overall, Qatar, it's been a bit of a PR disaster for them hosting the World Cup because I don't think mm. many people are looking there going, "Oh, yeah, I'm I'm now one over. I'm <laughs> you know, book me a holiday to Doha." No, no, definitely not. No, yeah, I think um, I think it's been a good World Cup. It has, in terms of the football. Uh, yeah. Football, from a footballing perspective. But yeah, PR definitely is... Let, uh, let me tell you my problem with it, though. And I do have a problem with it. Please. And it is quite a big problem. Um, so <laughs> I, I, I look at everything from the point of view of... Um, and I've said this before on this podcast, as someone, because I go to a lot of football, right? So um, so I, I, I sort of... From the minute I sit down and watch a football match, I'm looking for certain... You know, I'm listening all the time to like what the noises in the crowd, the types of songs, how manufactured they are, as opposed to sort of organically created in the crowd, the types of people who are in the crowd when they show like the shots and stuff. And I have to say that from the very beginning of this World Cup, it has had a real stench of um, sort of fakeness to it. There has been, there are fans who very, very clearly aren't actual kind of fans of their. Um, the, the countries that they're supposed to be, that they're sort of decked out in the, in the gear of um, supporting. And also, um, and, and sorry, and that is really, really demonstrated by the, the atmosphere in, inside the stadiums, which really comes across on TV, with the exception of Argentina, whose fanatical fans seem to have travelled in massive numbers, and they're singing like, sort of, you know, proper songs, and they, they seem to have created these manic atmospheres. And also Morocco, who created an unbelievable atmosphere yesterday for their penalty shootout with Spain. And, you know, so some, maybe some of the Arabic teams, actually, and North African teams, because it's the proximity and they've been able to get there, um, are an exception to this rule. But overall, it has had a real kind of sterile sort of pre-season um, pre-season tournament in LA vibe to it you know <laughs> if you if you turn on the telly and watch like if I watch like Liverpool in a in a in a exhibition match in Singapore 
that kind of ring around the stadium, the type of noise you get, it's been very kind of similar to to that. And one thing as well I've noticed, because there are so many, I'd call them either fake fans or kind of uh, casual fans um, who are attending these games and getting their hands on tickets, is that they seem more, much more bothered. And this is actually quite an interesting thing to maybe look into on in a future episode. It's because I think it's a trend uh, that is happening more and more in football. And it's probably, possibly, I don't know, as a consequence of the sort of computer game generation. But there is a constituency of people who are followers of individuals rather than teams. And that seems to even be true. You'd think surely that that could be true at club level, but surely not international level. But it is. You only have to look at the way in which the fans last night, despite I think at the time Portugal were 5-1 up, and they were the crowd was still chanting for Ronaldo, and that wasn't people who uh, were over there um, on a you know a package trip from from Lisbon or Porto. These were uh, local people who were only in that ground. They couldn't give a shit about watching Portugal. They couldn't give a shit about it being a World Cup knockout game. They were there to watch Ronaldo because he's a a, a superstar. Because I think any football fans with any sort of credibility wouldn't start chanting for a player um, <laughs> that's sitting on the bench and sulking when their team is has put in probably the best performance there for for a generation. They would just be so kind of overwhelmed with that that match and engrossed in that match. And there's so there's been a lot a lot of that sort of stuff and there was a particular shot last night of when one of the Portuguese goals went in um, obviously with Ronaldo not on the pitch uh, they showed they sort of swept along it was like one of these kind of drone things they use spider cam things and they swept over this group of Portuguese fans and there were six of them in a row who weren't the, the team had just scored they weren't reacting in any way they were just looking at their phones and I just thought that's, oh, right. that's not and, and that's not the first time I've seen that by the way that has happened a lot in most games that sort of thing has happened but for a World Cup knockout game also the number of empty seats I've found really really disappointing as well like you know the, the, yeah. they're they're most. I think they're being quite clever in terms of where those empty seats are distributed trying to get them away from the gaze of the TV cameras but there shouldn't be any you know, these. This is the biggest sporting competition in the world, the world's most popular sport. The you know, this is the apex of of football. There were only eight games, and then four games, and then two games, and then one game in terms of knockout. And those, there are people all over the world who would you know probably chop, chop off a digit in order to get access to tickets, and there should not be a single empty seat. And there clearly are, and that tells you everything you need to know about FIFA's decision to put it there in the first place, the lack of accommodation, the lack of affordability, the ticket prices uh, and accommodation prices, etc., etc. Uh, and also, I think people generally from all over the world, from certain countries uh, in particular, their kind of lack of appetite to, to go to, to Qatar in the first place. So, so you know, I, I cannot remember a World Cup where I've seen that amount of empty seats. You would often get some empty seats in group games, to be fair, but knockout, even Brazil the other night wasn't full. Brazil, you know, mm. um, maybe mm. that's, a, you know, again, a suggestion that Brazil have always kind of been the team that are probably followed by more um, sort of casual football fans who aren't aren't necessarily tied to their national team um, than any other. You know, people love Brazil. Um, and so you'd think a Brazil match should be full, even if it's a friendly um, in any part of the world. But, you know, a World Cup knockout game um, wasn't. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I my problem with that is that it it 
does slightly de- it, it devalues the competition. Clearly, it's still the World Cup oh, and all definitely. that. But you know, if you put the, I'm not. Of course, you need to get the balance right between giving emerging football nations the opportunity to host. It can't always be in you know Italy. Um, well, I mean, more's the pity, but still, it can't always be in Italy. But when you when you host football in proper football countries with a football fan culture. The, the vibrancy and the atmosphere around the whole tournament and in each stadium will benefit as a result. And I think you'll probably see that in the next World Cup because, all right, yes, it's the final's going to be in the Mickey Mouse velodrome or whatever in, in, in the United States. But there's going to be a lot of games in Mexico and, you know, that is a proper football country um, with, like, fanatical, passionate support and love of the game. And I've not felt that in any so far. Maybe the quarterfinals, which... I know that they they save quite a high proportion of tickets back so that teams, when they realise they're in at that stage, the proper fans can get access to it. Maybe they'll be different, I don't know, but I, I look forward to finding that out. But I agree with you, Matt. It's been an excellent tournament on the whole. Quite a lot of nil... Weirdly, you'll have a, there was a lot of nil-nil draws and then some random, like, really high-scoring uh, games, like uh, when, um, what was it, Serbia 3, Cameroon 3. I remember starting watching that at, like, 10 in the morning, <laughs> thinking... I can't be bothered to watch this. And then it being one of the best <laughs> games of the a tournament. And um, Ghana, when they beat, was it South Korea 4-3 as well? When I think it went, went or was it 3-2? Oh, yeah. It was either 4-3 or 3-2, but it went, I think, yeah, I think it was 3-2 when S- S- Ghana went 2-0 up, South Korea looked dead and buried, then came out in the second half, scored two goals, and then Ghana hit with a, with a sucker punch. But, but that still point, there was one point when Spain <laughs> and Germany were were almost going, going out. out. Yeah. That was, that was crazy. I know. So yeah, and, uh, it's been, it's been some, yeah. yeah, no, it's been absolutely like some of those. Um, the groups have been really, really competitive. I think there was. I'm not sure, even sure there was a team who won all their matches. So uh, yeah, that was, no, there wasn't, which has no. got to be good for the for the tournament. Yeah, and you know, yeah, Spain and Germany very nearly both went out. Obviously, Germany did go out, and then Spain are now out. And yeah, and, and it's it's weird, isn't it? Because on one hand, you're kind of thinking, okay, this shows like maybe the balance of power is is. Is starting to spread a bit more, and the African and the Asian nations are starting to perform more strongly. But then you then look as you've ended up with the last eight, and really the only surprise nation in there are Morocco. And the only way that they essentially managed to to beat Spain was just to constrain them, constrict them, and then beat them on penalties. So essentially, they said, "I would if you'd have asked me to bet before the tournament who the quarterfinal lineup, I'd say six European teams." plus Brazil and Argentina. Instead, it's five European teams, plus Brazil and Argentina, <laughs> and then Morocco, who got there without even scoring a goal. So um, I would suggest that it's still there's still a long way to go in terms of genuinely... Imp- you know, because a lot of the teams that got to the knockout stage from Africa and Asia, you know, lost relatively heavily without scoring um, a goal um, in the... Or, or you know... Or not certainly not scoring enough anyway to to kind of get through once they got to the knockout stage, which is a you know a shame. But I'm looking forward to the quarterfinal, Matt. And it's nice yeah. to to see you watching some football. <laughs> yeah, well you know. Well, good. Well, on that on that level of World Cup anticipation <laughs> and excitement, uh, it's time to say goodbye for another edition. We will hopefully we'll either be back with a um, you know a very a sort of a quarter final. In fact, if we did one for the weekend, we could react to some of this quarterfinals and still be out in time before the England game, the big one on Saturday night. But if not, we will react. We'll either pre-act or react. But uh, whichever one of those it is, 
Make sure you hear it on Football Unfocused, the world's greatest podcast, uh, in a way. Goodbye. <laughs>